Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, April 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, multiple organizations file lawsuits against the state of Mississippi over legislation they call unconstitutional. Then, a recent Supreme Court ruling makes public defenders more accessible for those who can't afford an attorney. Plus, the curator of an upcoming exhibit at the Mississippi Museum of Art reflects on the gulfs among us. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Lawsuits are being filed against the state of Mississippi as the governor signs a bill to expand the state's role in criminal justice within the capital city. House Bill 1020 was the most highly debated piece of legislation this year, alongside several other measures that also directly influenced the capital city. Governor Tate Reeves signed 1020 on Friday, adding his expectations on how the expanded presence of Capitol Police and an inferior court could help reduce crime in Jackson. Jarvis George, executive director of the ACLU of Mississippi, says this law will not help Jackson residents, but instead take their rights away. There's been a lot of push back on these bills, and it's not just come from advocacy organizations. Um, if you go anywhere in the city and talk to folks, the 1020 is on their mind. Um, I've been in the legislature. I have been at ACLU for three years. I've never heard so many people know a bill number uh, that's come through the Mississippi legislature like this before. So if you say 1020 in the city of Jackson, everyone knows what it means, and that tells you that there are so many people against this bill. How do you think this is going to change life in Jackson? I think going forward, you, you're going to have citizens of Jackson feeling like they don't have a voice. You're seeing that in a lot of cities that uh, state legislatures are essentially acting like an authoritarian government by going into to cities that have either progressive leadership or doing anything that they don't like and uh, kind of taking over or preventing those cities from being able to govern themselves. I think that's one thing you're going to see um, on the implementation of this bill. If it comes to be, you're going to see more citizens uh, facing arrest. You're going to see uh, prosecutions based on courts that are full of unelected judges, uh, prosecutors that aren't elected or responsible to the citizens of Jackson. All of that's going to be going on, and you've got to be, you know, fearful that you've got a court system and legal system set up 
that is unresponsive to the needs of the citizens in that area. We've seen a lot of different versions of the bill go through the legislature this year, um, a lot of back and forth between the House and Senate and uh, lawmakers who represent the city of Jackson. What are your thoughts on what the bill eventually came to be? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of that uh, Malcolm X quote, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, you can't tell me that's progress. So, you know, they did make some some small changes to the bill, but you essentially got the same thing. You still have a court system that is set up with unelected judges. You still have the ability for prosecutors appointed by the attorney general to bring cases. Um, you still have the prospect of a individual being arrested in downtown Jackson and going through an entire legal system in which no one in the city has any authority over and a voting authority or anything to direct these folks on what to do. So you've got people completely outside of this community who can set up a legal system and, you know, end up putting someone in prison, um, end up taking away their their freedoms and rights, uh, and that's not done in any other part of the state. So this is something completely targeting the city of Jackson. A lot of lawmakers, uh, Democrats specifically, were focused on the idea that this is something that is racially motivated um, by a majority white legislature taking over a majority black city. Then on the other side, you had Republicans claiming that Democrats were making this into uh, a race-baiting issue. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that. How do you think this fits into Mississippi's longer history of racial discrimination and targeting of black communities? I'm 100% in the belief that if this is a majority white community, this bill doesn't get passed. Uh, there's no way that the legislature passes a bill like this if Jackson is 83% white. Um, that's just not based on everything that I've seen happen in that legislature. It's just my time. I, I cannot see anything like that happening. As far as the pushback from it and how folks have failed, especially black folks in the city, and for the legislature to just say, hey, we don't care, we're not hearing those folks, we're hearing from the folks we want to hear from, and to not even have any type of sensitivity to this issue, knowing the history of Mississippi, that's harmful to me. That just tells me you're going to have more people rightfully believing that the Mississippi legislature is a body that does not take into account black forces, and that if you're upset about something, they'll... they'll that you have lawmakers that are just going to push it to the side and say, oh, those are advocacy groups. These aren't real people. These aren't real concerns. This isn't something we need to even think about because we don't care about those voters. Those voters don't matter to us. Jarvis Dorch is the executive director of the ACLU of Mississippi, one of several partnering organizations to file action against the state yesterday, alleging the collection of Jackson bills undermines the rights of local residents. NAACP of Mississippi has also filed a case against the state. Mississippi Executive Director Charles Taylor says the theme of the bills are separate and unequal. The Capitol is supposed to be a place that protects all citizens. It's supposed to be a place that is creating laws that will create a bright future and will create equity for all citizens. But what has happened is that this legislative session, they have weaponized the legislature against the city of Jackson. And so as it relates to 1020, the reason why I say separate and unequal is because it would create a scenario where we would have unelected judges, unelected 
district attorneys everywhere else, every other judicial district, every other county and city, voters have an opportunity to elect and have influence over who their local leaders are. But for the city of Jackson, if these bills become law, it would mean that they wouldn't have that same kind of protection. Ultimately, Jackson is a city that's over 80% black. Highlands County is a county. It's over 70% black. And, you know, I question why would the legislator want to create a scenario where we can't have local control, where Capitol Police now have jurisdiction over the entire city of Jackson, especially as we've seen when they expanded their jurisdiction the first time, the number of individuals who lost their life while engaging with Capitol Police you know, uh, today I have been thinking very deeply about Jalen Rose, 25-year-old African-American man, you know, lost his life at the hands of the Capitol Police. And even more egregious, we still yet to have heard answers. So can you tell us a little bit about the lawsuit that y'all have filed against the state of Mississippi, and what is it challenging about these bills? What we're basically challenging is that principle, is that we don't have equal protection under the law, as, as is given to us with the 14th Amendment. You have a scenario where if you live anywhere else outside of the city of Jackson, your circuit court judges and your district attorneys is elected. But now with this law, there would be a part of the, the city of Jackson where those folks would be unelected. Well, the other reason why this is problematic, living in a state like Mississippi, and for the city of Jackson and for Hines County, those who get elected are what we call black preferred candidates because you have the overwhelming majority of those electors are African-American. That is not the case for the state of Mississippi. So even as they are one, we don't have the equal protection. We wouldn't have equal protection under the law that the 14th Amendment gives us if this is the case. But secondly, to add insult to injury, you have a scenario where there will be no influence over who these individuals are for Jackson residents because the folks who get to appoint them are not black preferred candidates, nor did they get elected in a black preferred district. Charles Taylor is executive director of the NAACP of Mississippi. Charles, thank you so much for talking with us today. No, thank you. Coming up, a recent Supreme Court ruling makes public defenders more accessible for those unable to afford an attorney. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Changes are coming to Mississippi's public defender system following a unanimous decision by the state Supreme Court. The ruling will impact thousands who cannot afford legal counsel and who spend months or even years awaiting trial. 
Cliff Johnson is director of the MacArthur Justice Center. He tells our Mike McEwen the ruling follows years of national inquests into Mississippi's dysfunctional public defense system. Prior to the Supreme Court's decision, unanimous decision, to change our rules, Mississippi was a hotbed of controversy and threatened litigation regarding lengthy periods of pretrial detention for thousands of people across the state. Mississippi is a place where we don't have a time limit on how long you can be held after arrest and pre-indictment. And uh, until this rule change was adopted, we had a situation where thousands of people who were locked up for months or years waiting for the district attorney to take their case to the grand jury would be stuck in a county jail, typically because they're too poor to afford bail, without a lawyer. We had a system where you you got a lawyer for just a minute for a couple preliminary proceedings at the very beginning of your case, and then that lawyer disappeared, and you wouldn't get another lawyer until after your indictment. So it raised very serious questions about the access to counsel that the Gideon famous Gideon Supreme Court decision um, provides, and it also has, you know, raised concerns regarding the lack of speedy trials in Mississippi. My understanding of the Mississippi criminal justice system is that anybody who's being brought up on felony charges outside of a capital offense, those charges are required to be presented before a grand jury. With that being said, prosecutors in Mississippi are also not required to provide a deadline for presenting these charges to a grand jury. So what does the combination of these two facts have on people who are not able to afford a lawyer of their own? Well, it's devastating. You know, what we have is people who've never been convicted of a crime, uh, in many instances haven't even been charged by the grand jury, who spend, you know, months or years locked up like you would expect someone who had been convicted of a crime to be locked up. So during that period of incarceration, you, you lose your job. You often lose your housing. Your family is put into you know crisis because you, you're not working and you're not helping support the, the household. So it, it, it's very destabilizing for our local communities. The, these people who ultimately are going to be coming back into our communities, either after a period of incarceration or after these charges are dropped, are coming back to you know much less favorable circumstances that you know create difficulty for not just those people but for our you know for entire communities. How rare is Mississippi's for lack of a better term its decentralized criminal justice system? How rare is that in the context of the United States? Well, there there are only 6 states in the United States that don't have a statewide public defender system. So so what happens in Mississippi is this delivery of legal services for poor people is handled at the county level. And different circuit court districts do it different ways. And there's a real problem with lack of independence on the part of public defenders. So rather than having this statewide systematic approach to public defenders where there's an independent body that decides which lawyers are going to be public defenders in different courtrooms across the state, in Mississippi, judges often have undue influence over who gets to be a public defender. And there was a lengthy report by the Sixth Amendment Center, a national organization that came down and looked at our public defender system, where they expressed grave concerns about this fragmented, patchwork type of public defender system we have here. So, you know, we don't have statewide standards for caseloads. 
We don't have independence for public defenders. We sure as hell don't have equal funding for public defenders as compared to prosecutors. So, you know, our system, despite this new rule change about which we're very excited and for which we've been working for years, our system still has a long way to go. You know, I I often think of it in terms of equality of arms, the notion of, you know, let's give public defenders what they need to be funded and supported in the same way that prosecutors and police departments are. And, you know, that remains part of our objective. Independent public defenders with adequate funding to protect people's liberty in a manner that complies with the United States Constitution. And 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 people are entitled to that. Losing your liberty is a big deal. Could you talk a little bit about the process in terms of getting this rule reviewed by the state court and ultimately changed? So people have been talking about the dead zone for some time now. This this issue, the state public defender, Andre Degree, has raised this point over the years. And our office at the MacArthur Justice Center here at Ole Miss Law School, we started gathering data that we posted at a website, msjldata.com, that showed thousands of people locked up because they were too poor to make bail and started writing media pieces, op-eds, and having stories come out highlighting individuals who've been held for you know long periods of time pretrial. We estimated the cost to local counties, the tens of millions of dollars this lengthy detention cost local counties across Mississippi. And ultimately, we pushed for and worked with people in, in filing a motion with the Uh, Mississippi Supreme Court proposing this change that would end the dead zone once and for all and eliminate this gap. That motion was taken up by the Criminal Rules Committee of the state Supreme Court. They then passed it along to the court on banc, all of the judges on the court, and it passed nine to zero. And, And I think one thing that's important to point out is you know, that that those nine justices don't always rule the same on cases. They come from different backgrounds and points of view. Then they unanimously adopted this rule change. The people who wrote comments in support of the rule change when the Supreme Court invited people to chime in came from across the political spectrum. You had the Cato Institute. You had a former United States Attorney General, Mike Mukasey, who was, a, who was appointed by George W. Bush. You had the Sixth Amendment Center. You had more liberal organizations all chiming in, the Ole Miss Law School, MC Law School, all chiming in to say it's time. It's time to change this practice, and it's ch- it's time to end the dead zone. So at a time when we're very divided about so many things, I think people should be encouraged because people took a good hard look at this issue over time and realized that it's just not right. People were getting hurt unfairly, and we all agreed to make a change. So you know, at a time when we're so deeply divided, I think this is a bit of good news. Coming up, curator of an upcoming exhibit at the Mississippi Museum of Art reflects on the gulfs among us. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Classical, jazz, indie, blues, folk, bluegrass, whatever you call your music. Find it on MPB Music Radio on mpbonline.org or the MPB Public Media app or on an HD radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Fifteen Mississippi artists make up this year's Invitational at the Mississippi Museum of Art. Curated by Katie Fole, Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the 
Detroit Institute of Arts. The creations in this year's Invitational reflects on the theme, Gulfs Among Us. It's a collective response to a series of ever-widening gulfs between people and communities, humans and the environment, the interior and exterior self. Foles shares more on the exhibition and how she came to select the 15 artists involved. I spent a lot of years living and working Jeez. in New Orleans, and so I already knew the incredible art being made all across the Gulf South region. But what really stood out to me about the artists that we've included in the show is the way that they brought together some really interesting thinking about social and political issues today. A lot of them are dealing with questions around race and representation, around the environment and the climate crisis, around issues that are affecting Mississippi as well as the world, and using their art as a way to help us think through or better understand what's happening and also propose solutions. In talking about these artists, do they have to have a great deal of experience in terms of years, or can they be novices? What are the requirements? There are really no requirements other than that they live in or work in Mississippi. And in this year's Invitational, we have young, very emerging artists in their 20s, as well as much more established artists. Uh, so the idea is really to represent a broad cross-section of the city to, or, or from, or of the state to pull artists from all across the state, not just from Jackson or the larger cities, as well as to engage artists from across, their, across different points in their careers. And when does this take place? So the exhibition will be on view from June 10th to September 17th at the Mississippi Museum of Art. And um, as I said, there's 15 artists in the exhibition, and um, the event will have an opening reception for members of the museum on June 8th. One of the amazing things that will happen on the event, at the event on June 8th, is that we will award a fellowship. So each of the artists that have been selected to participate, all 15, are eligible to apply for the Jane Crater Hyatt Artist Fellowship, which is a grant of up to $20,000 that will be awarded to one artist selected by myself as well as members of the Mississippi Museum staff and Jane Crater Hyatt herself. So, you know, in addition to the opportunity to be part of the catalog, to be part of the exhibition, there's also this chance to to win this big award. Why did you want to be a curator? I have always loved art, and I've experimented with so many different forms of art over time. And for a long time, I thought I wanted to be an artist. But what I discovered as I was working is that what really inspires me is the opportunity to think about art and history together, to think about working with artists to address and think through social issues, to respond to our moment. And I found so much power and purpose in the chance to work with artists to realize a vision and to work with a lot of different kinds of artists in many different places and think about the relationship across and between them. Working with artists, nothing personal, but you know, that art feel and writing feel, we tend to be kind of temperamental at times. How do you <laughs> deal with the various personalities and how they feel about their work and you trying to work with them on that? I mean, sometimes I say that I'm like um, part curator, part conflict resolution specialist, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's the case, right? You bring a bunch of people into a space who are all really passionate 
about their work and their vision. And a lot of it is this work of compromise, figuring out how to get people to work together. But, you know, and to me, it's kind of like the space of a museum or the space of an exhibition is kind of like a tiny microcosm or a tiny representation of our world at large. Like these negotiations are, are important and interesting, right? How do we make space for many different people, not just one single vision of how things are supposed to look in the world. And so I find that process tough at times, but also kind of beautiful too, you know, that you're bringing together 15 artists, most of whom don't know each other, don't know each other's work and asking them to coexist in a space and think about the ways in which what they're doing might relate to someone who they've never met. And it's the same for audiences, I think too going to be a really beautiful show and we're very excited to have people from across the state come and see some of the incredible marketing made by artists from the region well it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you you as well this has been mississippi edition on mpb think radio